why wouldn't the Pharisees accept Jesus' message? They wouldn't grieve over their sins because they didn't think they had any. They didn't want to listen to John the Baptist. They wouldn't go down to the Jordan to be baptized. They said, we're Abraham's children. We're in by heredity, by lineage. And John said, don't think that's getting you into heaven. In fact, the axe is at the root of the tree even now. And if God has to, he'll raise up a whole other generation from these stones. And you realize he's out in the wilderness where there's plenty of stones, no, no shortage of stones out in the Judean wilderness, the Galilean wilderness. So, and then he says, we played the flute and you wouldn't celebrate. And he says, you accuse the Son of Man, and he uses that messianic title for himself, of being a glutton and a drunkard because he's celebrating with sinners who have repented and cried out to God for mercy and have received mercy through their faith in Jesus as Messiah. We're talking about people who've grown up their entire lives thinking there's no chance for me. I've sinned too much. I'll never keep the law the way the Pharisees demand. And to hear that salvation was possible through faith, not through works, was the most glorious thing they'd ever heard, and it was time to celebrate. But like the other son in the story of the prodigal son, the older son, they didn't want to come in and party. So Jesus said, look, we, we played the dirge, you wouldn't mourn. You didn't think you needed to mourn. You played the flute, you wouldn't celebrate. You're, you're spoiled brats. And so, both John's message was rejected and Jesus' message was rejected. Same message, just coming at it from different perspective. And we said that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance and the fear of the Lord leads us to repentance. Both. You need, you need both of those in your life. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew added more to the story here to give us a fuller picture of what was going on. And that's where we left off last week. Jesus then turns and pronounces woes on all the cities he had just preached in for rejecting his message. You heard the message, you saw the miracles, you rejected it. Woe to you. Woe is biblical for your, to be cursed, to be damned, for your unbelief, for your unrepentance. You are responsible to respond to the gospel in faith. You understand that. You are responsible to respond to the gospel in faith. You have a choice to make. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Joshua said. But then he says something quite interesting right after saying that. He then turns to his father in prayer, and he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Well, how could 
you pronounce woes on people if God hid it from them. That doesn't seem fair. And then he goes on to say, this is well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Wow, that sounds a lot like God chooses who he'll save. So did I choose to be saved, or did God choose me to be saved? And we said that the Bible's very clear, unambiguous, unabashed answer is yes. You need to choose God, and you find out that he chose you. You would not have chosen him on your own. Our hearts are bent away from God. They're bent towards self. We're, we're all selfish. Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has gone his own way. No one seeks after God, no, not one. And so I know everyone had to grapple with this this week, if you haven't grappled with it before. And the way we want to grapple as human beings is to pick one or the other. And the Bible says you need to choose God and you need to glorify him for choosing you. And it leaves it at that. There's this false view of the doctrine of election that goes, well, either man chooses or only God chooses. That's not what Calvinism is. That's hyper-Calvinism or some other aberration. The view is God chooses and man chooses, even though it doesn't seem to make sense on the human level. So please don't mischaracterize what we're teaching from the pulpit as, well, pastor said that we can't choose. God does all the choosing. The pastor never said that. The Bible never said that. And the story today is about a woman who chose to follow Jesus. And we struggle with that. But there's lots of things we struggle with in our faith. Now, Jesus then turns around after praying that prayer, and he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you think this woman in the story needed rest? Do you think she was weary and heavy laden? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you say, well, that sounds like an invitation. It is an invitation. It's an invitation. The Bible clearly teaches both. And it's a doctrine to be in awe of and to take it by faith. And it keeps us humble because anytime we're Tempted to say, well, you know what? I'm better than that guy because I chose and he didn't. It keeps us from boasting in our salvation. And it exalts God's sovereignty without negating our responsibility to choose. 
and you're still going to struggle. I know, you should. If you're not struggling with it, it's not the doctrine the Bible teaches. If you're not struggling with this, you've resolved the tension in unbiblical ways. You've picked one or the other when it's a both and, and you say, well, logic doesn't work that way. Do you have any problem with Jesus being fully God and fully man? I do, but I don't. Because it's what the Bible teaches. But I'm a math teacher. That doesn't work. You can't be 100% of two things that are actually opposites. God is not man and man is not God, but Jesus is fully God, fully man. Do you have a problem with God being three persons in one? Neither do I, but mathematically, one plus one plus one should equal three, not one. And we're not saying he's one person and three persons. The Bible says he's three persons, one God. Do you have a problem with God's eternality? How can something always exist? Something has to. Someone. Do you have a problem with God creating everything out of nothing? I can't wrap my mind around these things. It's what causes me to worship. So our faith is filled with these mysteries, but then there's plenty of things that are easy to understand. And I'm telling you today that you need to place your faith in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father but through me. You, that's unmistakable. No confusion there. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It will preach the word of God. will preach the gospel. You respond in faith and you can have assurance that God has forgiven you of all your sins. And you will hear for him the same thing the woman heard. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Do we have any scientists in the room? Let me see your, your hands. Come on, raise them, raise them high. I know there's a lot here. So look at those hands. And if you're struggling with this apparent contradiction, take one of these scientists to lunch and ask them to explain to you quantum mechanics. Ask them how an electron can be in two places at once at the same time. Impossible. All of our experiments, all of our equations back up this fact. And the smartest people in the world, when they talk about it, go, we don't know how it works, but it does. And you're using a cell phone and a computer and all kinds of electronic devices that are based off of that theory that we don't understand at all, but we know it's there. So as Psalm 19 says, all creation declares the majesty of God. I was trying to take a break from theology. I thought I'd study a little astrophysics this week. And then I was like, oh, there's God again. Messing with my mind. Throwing stuff at me that I can't wrap my mind around. And it all causes me to worship. Not to go home and go, well, I can't worship this God until I have it all figured out. No. The day you have it all figured out is the day you become God. It ain't going to happen. Wrong religion.
So let's look at this story. Beautiful story. It's like a play. I like going to live theater. My kids like to put on live theater. And and they like to film movies at home. And it tells a story. Beautiful story here. We could... We could explain it uh, in a theology class, or we could see it in a story, and it means the same thing. But for some, the story is more powerful. For others, they want a whiteboard and a Venn diagram. We can accommodate both. It's the same gospel, same salvation. Let's do story format this morning. We had a lot of hard theology the last four Sundays. So here's the scene. Act 1, scene 1, a Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. Now you've got to understand the, what's going on here. This is an honor-shame culture. Being invited to dinner is a high honor. It's a high honor. But there's certain protocols one must follow in the honor-shame culture. And I find it completely ironic that after we just read Jesus saying, Come to me for salvation, here's a Pharisee thinking he's doing Jesus a favor by inviting him to dinner. Jesus invites us to have dinner at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But here's this arrogant Pharisee and invite this so-called prophet to dinner. And the dinner table would be low. You recline, you lay on pillows, and you kick your feet behind you. And the closer you sat to the host, the more honorable the position Now, the story doesn't tell us where Jesus was seated. But we would assume that he's seated close to the host. They would also leave the doors open, we know from historical records, so that the public could observe the dinner and hear the conversation and be impressed with who's dining at my house tonight. So lots of, lots of things going on here. It's not just a dinner. Lots of subtext. When your guest arrived, your slave was supposed to untie their sandal if they wore sandals. Remember John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal or his thong. So your lowliest servant was supposed to come with a basin of water and wash your guest's feet. And you would greet your guest with a kiss, you know, as the Middle East custom is still today. And anoint his head with oil, a fragrant oil, like an olive oil, like a fragrant olive oil, perfumed, right? No deodorant back then. So it it was... So everybody would enjoy the meal. (laughs) This is a big deal. And it still is today. 
And we see that this Pharisee broke protocol, which normally would have brought great dishonor on the Pharisee, but nobody at the table, none of the other Pharisees respected Jesus. So actually, the Pharisee thought this was bringing him great honor by embarrassing Jesus. This was a big diss for the teens, right, in the room. He just got dissed. Or is that like 80s talk? Am I, you know, what do they say now? Help me out. Burned. He got burned. Which has taken on a whole new meaning because of Bernie Sanders, right? But he, he, got, he got burned. And he got burned too. Yeah. So, he thinks he's got the upper hand and he's showing off in front of public, shaming this house guest. Act 1, scene 2, an uninvited guest shows up. An uninvited sinner shows up to dinner. Nice rhyme. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Uh, we gleaned that she was a prostitute. Now, don't confuse the story with the night Jesus was anointed also from an alabaster flask before his crucifixion. It's different, different alabaster flask, different woman. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. The word wet in the Greek literally means rain. She rained tears on his feet. What a beautiful image. Have you ever wept unconsolably or inconsolably? Like, you're almost heaving. And the tears are just flowing. Some of you are nodding yes. Some of you don't cry very much, but I, I, I can weep. And I understand her tears. It's what makes me cry the most, too. Tears of, of joy, and I just can't believe Jesus would love me this much like this. And she does everything. You realize she does everything the Pharisee was supposed to do. She was following protocol, but taking it to the next level. She's not expecting a slave to wash his feet. She's washing his feet with her tears, no less, and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, back up a minute wide-angle lens. Can you imagine what the scene was like in the room at this point? All the focus is on this woman, and does he know who she is, and what is she? She's not going, oh, she is going to. Oh, my goodness. Please stop. Somebody stop her. Make her stop. And I get the impression that Jesus is just going right on with his dinner. 
Because when you're God, worship is normal. Everyone's like, this is the most inappropriate behavior we've ever seen. And Jesus is like, no, this is the most appropriate behavior. This is what worship looks like. People who know they've been forgiven of much sin act this way. If And when Jesus returns, how will you respond? Love, love the song about imagining what we'll do when we're seeing Jesus face to face. I know some of you think it's cliche and it's played at too many funerals, but I can't ever get enough of it because it really just captures what the sentiment is. Will I ask him questions? Will I fall on my face and worship? Will I try to do all of it at the same time? Probably. Here we see someone who got an opportunity to be near her Savior and look at the worship that comes out of her. This is adoration to the nth degree. She don't care who's watching. She don't care what your title is or what you think of her. All that matters is Jesus and what he thinks of her. Certainly we understand she has repented. She knows who she is and what she's done. And she's looking for a way to leave that life. But the Pharisees, the teachers of Israel, offered no way to leave that life. Once a sinner, always a sinner. The Pharisee makes a valid observation but then comes to two false conclusions. So here's the valid observation. He says in his heart, she's a sinner. Duh. (laughs) Yes, the whole town knows. And from what we know of the Pharisees who were hypocrites, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the Pharisees at the table really knew. And he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She's defiling him. So he concludes wrongly that Jesus can't be a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know because God would reveal to him what kind of woman this was, and he wouldn't let her touch him in that way. So, either he doesn't know, which proves he's not a prophet, or he knows, and he's letting her touch him anyways, which no prophet would ever do. So, he concludes falsely that Jesus is not a prophet. We know he is, though. He knows who she is. He knows what she's done. He knows exactly what kind of woman she is. And he has granted her repentance. And he has forgiven her. So she is not defiling him. Her sins have been forgiven. The holiness that Jesus will buy for us on the cross is already being credited to her account because of her faith. 
She is holy now. She's a saint. Being a saint isn't something that you get after you've done three miracles and whatever the other criteria that the Roman Catholic Church places on sainthood. The Bible says that anyone who's in Christ is a saint. We're, we're the saints. She's holy now. Not with the righteousness of her own, but with the righteousness that's been given to her, she has Christ's righteousness. That's how this works, through faith. So I said he made two false conclusions. The first one's obvious. He, he, he uh, concludes that Jesus is not a prophet. But the second false conclusion is that he thought there was only one sinner at the dinner that night. That's why he's not tracking. He doesn't think he's a sinner, and he certainly wouldn't have invited any sinners to his table. Although, oddly and ironically, he's convinced Jesus now is a sinner. And if he's sitting close to him, he's in danger of defiling himself. The whole Pharisaic system is maddening, full of contradictions, impossible for anyone to keep. But that wasn't stopping them from believing that they were keeping it and expecting everyone else and teaching everyone else to stick to the system. Part of what Jesus does when he comes to earth is to point out all the absurdity and hypocrisy of man-made religious systems. And the religious hate being exposed. Oh, they act nice and kind and invite you over to dinner, but you heard the way that Jerry sang the song I love that line in the song where he said, I wanted to take this would-be itinerant preacher from Galilee by the throat and throw him out the door. That would certainly be a breach of protocol. Act 2, scene 1, then. We've got the proverbial 800-pound gorilla in the room in the person of this prostitute weeping, raining tears on Jesus' feet while everyone's trying to eat dinner wiping his feet with her hair, sobbing, weeping, kissing, showering his feet with kisses. Jesus decides he'll school a teacher of Israel. More irony. The Pharisee was the teacher of Israel, but Jesus is the true teacher. And Jesus answered him, and I love this because here's Jesus condescending, because he's humble, to the level of this hypocritical Pharisee. And he says, Simon, this isn't Simon Peter. Simon was a very common name back then. Simon, I have something to say to you. That's kind of a way of asking permission. And Simon says... Go ahead, say it, teacher. And he uses the title teacher, which is a title of respect, but it may have rolled off of his tongue a little facetiously. Say it, teacher. It must have been very hard for him to say that while this woman is still sitting at Jesus' feet. And he tells this, this short parable. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. We know a denarii was, uh, a denarius was a day's wages. 
for a day laborer. So 50 days wages, one owed, 500 days wages, the other owed. That's a lot of money. It's not the same as the parable where the two debtors had an unpayable debt and their debts were canceled and then the money lender goes out after his debts are canceled and he asks, uh, demands that someone who owed him a little bit of money pay him back now or I'll throw you in prison. That, that parable is teaching a different truth. If, if we've been forgiven an unpayable debt, then we need to forgive others the small debts they have against us. This parable is teaching a, a different point, and that's the thing about parables is they teach one point usually. Don't go on rabbit trails. What's the one point? And Jesus is clear. If you know you've been forgiven a lot, you're going to love a lot. You're going to be thankful a lot. But if you think you were only forgiven a little, eh. So which of them will love more? And Simon answered and said, it's a great verb in the Greek that's translated suppose, but let me kind of translate it for you. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. I mean, it's so obvious. But the, the verb used here indicates he was having to think about it a lot. And I wonder if he was like, oh, I see where this is going. I'm looking for an answer that gets me out of the bind. That he just says, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And I love this. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Who's in the driver's seat now? Who's grading the papers? The tables have been turned. Of course, they were really never what the Pharisee thought they were. Jesus was always the one in authority. He was always the teacher. He was always in the driver's seat. But now, everyone knows it. It's, you can read up a lot on this about how the asking of questions in an honor-shame culture was like a sparring match. And when you could ask a question that the other person either couldn't answer, you've won, or the answer was obvious but proved that they were in the wrong. So this is how it works over there, and I understand it still works that way over there today. Act 2, scene 2, Simon is now going to be publicly humiliated at his own table in his own house. He was going to humiliate Jesus. Instead, he ends up being humiliated in his own house, turning toward the woman, which is so beautiful that Jesus acknowledges her when no one else wanted to acknowledge her. Do you, do you see this woman? Look at her. Stop ignoring her. Look at her. Do you see this woman? Made in the image of God. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She's done this. You didn't even have your slave wash my feet. 
And you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Kissing feet is the lowliest, most humiliating of all acts. It's what a conquering king would force the conquered to do publicly. Kiss my feet. It's humiliating. It puts the one who's conquered in a very precarious situation where the back of your neck is exposed. It was a sign of submission, complete surrender. And she's doing it willingly. I surrender to this king. His loyal subjects will kiss the king's ring. She says, I'm not even worthy of that. I will kiss your feet. She gets it. She understands what her true position is before God. And then she anoints his feet with perfume, very expensive perfume, alabaster imported from Egypt. She obviously had money, so we assume she did well at her trade. But she doesn't want that life anymore. Remember I shared my testimony with you when the verse God used to save me was in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Let me read that to you because maybe there's someone here today who doesn't want to be known as the sinner anymore. Can I get a new identity? Some people say, you know, why can't God just let bygones be bygones? He's God. He could do that if he wants. Well, then he wouldn't be just. Rebellion Treason, cosmic treason, must be punished. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? She knows she's unrighteous. Everybody knows it. She's the kind of woman that parents when she's walking down the street, take their children and stay away from her, don't even look at her. We've we've been there. I've happened to drive my kids to the dentist and you got to drive down Union. And that day, one of your kids finally takes notice and goes, what is that? that? That's a human being. And she's lost. And she needs our prayers. And then they get a little older and you explain, you know, oh, oh, yeah. And stay away from her in that sense, but she needs to know Jesus. So how will she ever know salvation if no one's allowed to ever talk to her or acknowledge her as a human being. 
and not just a commodity to be bought and sold. Thankful there's a ministry down in Bakersfield that reaches out to women in the trafficking scene. It's called um, Magdalena's Hope. And they go and give the ladies backpacks with toiletries and grooming products and and ask them would you would you like somewhere to stay that's safe and and reach them with the gospel a tough ministry but very fruitful do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And these are the words that saved me. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And I said, oh God, can I be a such were some of you. I don't have to pretend and put on a show that I'm perfect when I know I'm not. And I had that label as the, the good kid, the good boy, the one we want all of our kids to turn out to be like. And if they only knew what was going on in my heart, such were some of you. This is what this woman wanted, to be a such were some of you. Yeah, I was that woman, and my sins were great but I'm not that woman anymore. Praise God. That's the offer. That's the free gift. But you only can accept the gift if you first acknowledge that you are a some of you. We all are. And you got to want to be a such were some of you. And the only way you can be a were some of you is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who never was one of you. That's how it works. Then you can be honest about who you were because you're not that person anymore. In Christ, I'm a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away. All things are being made new. So grateful that our ladies are going through that redeemed study. That's what it's all about. I don't know what your life's all about. Is it making money or trying to go on some trip somewhere or climbing the corporate ladder, you're missing out. The real story is redemption. All about redemption. Being made new. Stop just trying to be a better version of the, of the some of you. <laughs> you don't want to be that person anymore. Jesus reveals that the woman isn't the only sinner at the dinner. And he says, for this reason, I say to you, points to her, or he says to you, Simon, pointing to her, her sins, which are many. See the acknowledgement? Yes, they are many. Nobody's doubting that. She, her sins have been forgiven. And the, the verb tense here is perfect which means it happened in the past already and has ongoing ramifications in the present and in the future. 
So her sins have already been forgiven. We think she already had an encounter with Jesus, placed her faith in him. And now she's returning to worship. As you're sitting there saying, well, where did she ever say, you know, the sinner's prayer? Where did she ever confess with her mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in her heart that God raised from the dead? When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, go in peace, we know that has happened. She has done that in her, in her heart. What we're seeing is the fruit of her faith. Washing his feet didn't save her. Washing his feet didn't save her. Kissing his feet didn't save her. Anointing his feet didn't save her. That's, that's the evidence that her faith is genuine. What does James say? Faith without works is a dead kind of faith. He's not saying you need faith and works. He's saying true faith will demonstrate itself in works. Here's her works. And I can't think of any more beautiful works than that. I took all the money she had earned through her life of sin and bought this expensive perfume. So Act 3, Scene 1, what's the conclusion here? Jesus declares that the repentant sinner has been forgiven. There's other sinners at the table, but only one got to hear publicly your sins have been forgiven. And it was the repentant sinner, the one who knew she was a sinner. He said to her, personally, your sins have been forgiven. Wow. I would say I can only imagine what she was thinking there, but I know what she was thinking because the same thing happened to me. The day I knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, my sins have been forgiven. So liberating. So liberating. And my faith exercised itself, demonstrated itself by going home and weeping at the feet of my wife. The story is so precious to me. I didn't wash her feet with my tears, but it was pretty similar. And I had already known that truth here, but that was the day it landed here. So I don't know if there's anyone in this room who knows it here, but doesn't know it here. That's the mystery of God. Only he truly knows who's saved and who's not. So I don't presume to tell anyone. I tell him I know how you can be saved. I know how you can have assurance because the Bible tells us so. But I can't make the decision for you. And so I preach 
trusting that God's word will not return void. I don't sit around trying to come up with a more and more clever gospel presentation. It doesn't matter how clever I make the presentation. A hardened heart is a hardened heart. You have to decide. I can't change your mind for you. You must change your mind. You must repent. The word literally means to turn the mind. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and ye shall be saved. Very simple. Very deep. Act 3, scene 2, the other sinners at the table are shocked and indignant. They're still reclining and they begin to mumble to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Bingo. The first theologically correct thing to come out of their hearts all night. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God in human flesh. He forgives sinners. And they were thinking, certainly God wouldn't forgive a prostitute. Really, Jesus just got through saying that the greater the sin, the more the love for God. The more you understand the depths of your sinfulness compared to a holy God, the more you will respond in your salvation with gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. Grace isn't amazing if you're just a little sinner. So, listen to God, and when He tells you, you are a great sinner, reply the way John Newton replied, I have a great Savior. He said, I know two things in life. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. And so Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We assume it's implicit that she's leaving her life of sin now. As a, as a new woman. It's going to be hard. She's got the reputation but you know, when you've been forgiven, it really doesn't matter what people think about you anymore, does it? Yeah, that was me. But that's not who I am anymore. And yeah, if you're humble, keep me accountable because on my own strength, I'll go back to my pigsty. But through prayer and the people of God, holding one another up in prayer and keeping one another accountable and sitting under the preaching of God's word. God uses that in the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the power to say no to the old man and say yes to the new creature. And that's how we grow in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. It wasn't because she washed his feet. That was the good works... That Paul talks about in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared beforehand. God set up this whole scene. 
Isn't that amazing? God in his sovereignty set up this whole scene that she would be there and this Pharisee would be there and she was planning on washing Jesus' feet no matter what happened and the Pharisee decided, I ain't washing his feet and I'm not anointing his head and I'm not giving him kisses. And she had already decided to do those three things. Isn't that amazing? Yes, she, she chose to go do that. The Pharisee chose to reject Jesus. Human choice, human responsibility. God sovereignly set it all up. How does that work? I don't know, but it is beautiful. It is wonderful. I'm so thankful for it. It causes me to just get lost in wonderment and awe of this great God. I hope so for you as well. Epilogue, then. So which kind of sinner are you? Are you more like the prostitute or more like the Pharisee? I don't know. How would I know? Jesus told us through the parable. Here's how you know. See how much love you have for Jesus. And Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. And what's his first command? Love one another. So, How much love do you have for Jesus and for others? How much love do you have for lost sinners? Are you disgusted by them, or does your heart move to them in compassion because you recognize a fellow lost sheep? You say, here's one former lost sheep reaching out to a current lost sheep that you too could be a former lost sheep. Uh, Such were some of you. Those who know they've been forgiven much, love much. And those who think they've been forgiven a little, they love a little. And those who don't think they need to be forgiven at all, have trouble loving at all. That's a hard lesson, but God in his love for us teaches us the hard lessons. So we can repent and respond in faith. And so, Father, we ask you that you would show us today and this week what our love looks like to you. We know we love ourselves. That's a given. How do we love you? How much do we love others? How do you want us to demonstrate our love for you this week. If we see ourselves as the hardest person in the world to love, then we will respond to God's grace and love by reaching out to the hardest people to love around us. And when this happens, Lord, we understand that all credit will be given to you because no human can love this way on their own. And when people ask us where this love comes from, may we be quick to exalt the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.